Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Hello, uh, welcome to anyone who is here with us live, those that might be watching at home right now, camera one, camera two, um, or those that might be watching in the future. My name is Christopher, I am the Connections Pastor here at Area 10 Faith Community, and who are you? I am Leanne Lytle, I am a partner here at Area 10, and I just happen to be married to that guy. (laughs) Yeah. So Leanne and I have been married for over 15 years now, and this is the first time that we have ever preached together. So this is kind of fun. A little bit stressful if you've ever worked with your spouse before. You, you know, a lot of communication and patience and scheduling, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about marriage and sex today. He was talking about it, and then he said, hey, why don't you come with me? And that'll make it better. Um, it <laughs> If you, I mean. <laughs> I mean, if you know him, you know he can sometimes make it awkward, a little bit uncomfortable, but I honestly can't promise that I am going to help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. If you spend any time around me, you know how quickly I can make things weird. Um, so with that said, we did want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, we have A10 kids right down the road, so if you have a preschool through fifth grade, that is a great place for them to be anyway, maybe especially today, um, unless you don't mind potentially having an awkward conversation with your child later today or tomorrow. So we leave that fully up to you. Yeah. And then also keep in mind, we know not everybody's in, not everyone in here is married, right? Like people are single, dating, engaged. Um, we understand that. But the thing about God's word is that if it's true, it's true. It's true for everybody. And there's, there's takeaways and there's things to implement into our own lives based on that truth, no matter um, what types of relationships we're in or whether we're married or single. So stick with us, and, um, and hopefully you'll, you'll find those. You'll find those nuggets. I don't know if you can recall in your life when you got the talk, um, you know, the birds and the bees, which, by the way, I have a friend in Arizona. Their family calls it the coyotes and the snakes, which <laughs> I've never understood anyway. Um, Ryan, if you're watching, one day explain it to me. Um, so, to, you know, I remember I was 15 years old, which is really pretty late uh, to get that conversation because at that point I had heard, you know, from my teachers at school in class and from friends, I was exposed to things that, quite frankly, no one should be exposed to. And so I already had a lot of information. And my mom, um, who I take after in some ways, came into my bedroom and was like, Christopher, we need to have a talk. And I was like, oh no, what did I do? And then she goes, no, the talk. And I was like, oh dear Lord, no, please. (laughs) Because it's just awkward and mortifying, right? And my mom is unnecessarily graphic in most of the ways that she communicates. And I love her dearly, but like my family doesn't have good boundaries in how we necessarily present ourselves to people. And her bottom line, which is what I want to share with you this morning, was this, Christopher, keep your privates private. Welcome to our TED Talk. So basically, we're here to be your parents, and we're going to have the talk about the birds and the bees. Not really. (laughs) We're um, not that talk, but we're going to talk today a little bit about mutual responsibility and mutual belonging. Mm -hmm. So over the past uh, really few months, we've been working our way as a church through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Swipe Right. And the whole idea is that currently in our culture, 
um, what culture says is correct for relationships is actually really damaging and really painful, and it actually keeps us from living lives that really flourish. And so we wanted to really embrace what God says, what we see in Scripture of how the various types of relationships in our life function and how they can function. So the reason we actually um, settled on 1 Corinthians 1 is because we really felt led by God, but as a staff and leadership of this church, um, we realized pretty quickly, like, it's been a weird season in, in the world, right? And um, the reality of the Roman Empire when this book was written and now are actually really similar. And so although the book of 1 Corinthians can kick up a lot of stuff and it could be sometimes a little challenging and you might want to scream out like, whoa, wait, um, like there is some really good stuff in there, which is why we want to wade through this. Today, we're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 7, and the beginning of chapter 7 is really the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, um, responding to a previous correspondence from the church in Corinth, and so we're going to dig into that today. Uh, so First Corinthians 7, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Isn't that the most romantic thing you've ever heard? <laughs> hey. <laughs> so to give a little bit of clarity, um, there are really two types of marriage ethic that we see in the world today. We have a biblical marriage ethic, which is fully defined by God as we see in Scripture. And just full disclosure, the church has not always gotten it right. And Christians have sometimes um, taken things out of context and have abused uh, really the definition of what marriage should be. But the biblical marriage ethic is defined by God as we see it play out through Scripture. And then we have the cultural marriage ethic. And cultural marriage ethic is defined by whatever the overall consensus is in culture at any given time or place. So for instance, if you are um, kind of a student of social sciences. Over the last two or three years, it's actually been fascinating. You could, there's a lot of studies that have happened. In the, in the past two years in particular, there have been three different shifts in the concept of a marriage ethic in America. In those same two years, there hasn't been a single shift in the country of Peru with their cultural marriage ethic, but in the country of Iraq, there have been two very different marriage shifts um, for their marriage ethic. So again, Biblical marriage ethic is defined by God as we see through Scripture, and a cultural marriage ethic is fully defined by the, whatever the overwhelming voice is for a certain time and a certain place, which is why it is constantly, constantly changing. I want to read something to you real quick that I am sure if you've ever been to a wedding, you have probably heard this verse before. It's Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, 
let no man separate. A lot of us have heard that, right? So this is Jesus talking to Jewish believers, and he is reminding them, hey, remember what you heard, remember what you read. He's pointing them back to the original Jewish scriptures in Genesis, when at the very beginning of humanity, we see God begin to lay down the foundation of what a biblical marriage ethic really is and what it looks like. And so from Genesis to Revelation, there are so many different things that point to what a true biblical marriage ethic is, that this could be its own message series. So, but for this morning, we just want to start off and really point to three things that we see in Scripture that really point to the purpose of a biblical marriage ethic. The first is this. Biblical marriage teaches us about love. Biblical marriage teaches us really how to love as a choice of our wills every day, no matter what life throws at us. Now, the, the problem is, and the challenge comes, because the, the cultural idea of love and marriage and the biblical idea of love and marriage, they differ quite a bit. In our current cultural context, love and marriage is really, as it's defined by popular culture, is based more on feeling and attraction and sexual compatibility than anything else, which in many ways makes sense. Like, those are important things, but it's lacking a key function. Now, there are three types of love that we primarily see through Scripture. The first one is phileo. Phileo is, like, have you heard the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? That word phileo, it is that kind of love. It's that kinship. It's you just enjoy spending time with someone. Like, I love spending time with my wife. We are very different people. Um, we have different, like, perspectives on things. My sense of humor well, I'm a man-child, so it's bad, but, like, we, but it works. But I legitimately enjoy spending time with my wife. I cherish our Saturday morning dates. We make each other laugh. We know what it's like to cry with each other, all those kinds of things. It's that kind of love. And, and even outside of marriage, your friendships, the, th the relationships you have with your family, it's that kind of, you just enjoy being around one another. So that's phileo. Then you have eros. And eros is the romantic, sensual love. Which she will not give an example of. Which I will not be giving an example of because she's here. And see, it helps. You're it welcome. really balances out. <laughs> we will make it less awkward for everybody. But you have that eros love, which is based on sexuality and sexual attraction. And sex is an important part of marriage. Now, for the most part, our culture says that that is what a relationship hinges on, is your affinity for someone, how you like to spend time with them, and your sexual attraction to someone. But what happens when things change? What happens when the feeling of love goes away? We begin to use words like irreconcilable differences. So here's the thing with phileo love, and you can think of any relationship in your life that maybe isn't really strong anymore. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member. At some point, maybe you had a fight or you had a falling out, and you began to drift apart, and there, there came a moment when you said, you know what, this isn't worth fighting for anymore. It takes too much of my time and my energy, so I'm done. I get it. I do it. I, 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 I know what that's like. If you ask someone, hey, would you ever divorce your spouse because of that the sex isn't as good as you were hoping it would be, or sex changed over time, most people would say no. Except statistically, um, it actually shows that that is continually one of the main reasons that people get divorced, is that sex is not what they expected it to be. 
because things change, right? We get older. Guys, from this time of age 35 and on, you start to grow hair at an alarming rate from your nose and ears. That is not attractive to any woman, I promise. Like body parts begin to sag. Things don't work anymore. There's like, there's just a lot of things that happen. The stress of life gets in the way. And so it's easy if you hold on to a cultural marriage ethic to go, well, I don't feel really close to them anymore. And like the sex just isn't that good and it doesn't make sense anymore. So this just, this must mean it's the end of the marriage. Where, what's different about a biblically-based marriage and a biblical marriage ethic is agape love. And if you've been to church more than three times, odds are you have heard the word agape love. It's the type of love that, that God uses to describe his love for us, his love for humanity, this chasing after us. It's the reason that Jesus came and died and had victory over death so that we can have new life. It is a choice. And we are called to embody that kind of love. So agape wraps around the phileo and the eros. So when things happen, when life happens, when bodies change, when hard times come, you don't just cut bait. You stand up and and you choose to fight for your relationship. You choose to fight for your marriage. So number one, biblical marriage teaches us about love. Number two, biblical marriage points others back to God. And we're going to touch on this a little bit more uh, a little later, but I want to read to you um, Isaiah 62, 5. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Throughout the Bible, we see God using marriage as a description of our relationship with him. Um, and the reality is when you have a functioning biblical marriage where you understand that it is a covenant that is first and foremost surrendered and submitted to God and that you are surrendering and submitting to one another, the natural interaction of your life will point to the reality of Christ. And that is huge. And that should never be diminished. And then finally, number three, biblical marriage points us back to God. In his book, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas says, marriage makes you holy, not happy. I don't like that. (laughs) Because I like to be happy. Like, I'm a goofy dude. Like, I know Leanne likes to be happy. I'm sure you like to be happy. Don't get me wrong. I know we all go through our emo phases where we want to put on a hoodie and stare out the window and watch the rain and listen to, like, Dashboard Confessionals or Fiona Apple or (laughs) Olivia Rodrigo for those that are Gen Z right now. Like, I get it. We all go through those moments, and that's totally fine. But, like, let's be honest, we all want to be happy. So when we read that, it's easy to go, no, I don't, I don't like that because I want to be happy. But what Thomas is getting at is a fundamental truth that's so easily missed, that in marriage, we are actually being refined, and we are being refined by God and by Christ through our submission. And it opens our eyes to a reality that really a lot of us miss pretty often, and it's this. Your spouse can never be and will never be all of what you expect. They will never fulfill all of your expectations because they were never created to. We put so much pressure on what we think marriage is supposed to be or what we think our spouses are supposed to be able to do for us that it causes pain, um, trauma, depression, anxiety, And we miss the fact that only God can be our everything. I have seen a lot of marriages end because one or both spouses have set such high expectations for the other that it is impossible for them to meet. And they always just constantly felt like they were failing. 
And so for all of us, married, single, divorced, widowed, I would want to ask us this question. At what point is God enough for you? At what point is Christ enough for you? If you read the whole of Scripture, there are just over 100 verses that speak explicitly about marriage, which is a lot. But when you compare that with the 31,000 other verses in the Bible, you quickly see that although marriage is a gift, it is a calling, it is not the end-all to be-all our relationship with God is. When you are faced with unfulfilled expectations, which are going to exist, it is an opportunity for all of us to turn to God to meet the needs that only He can fully satisfy. And in the process, you are putting your spouse in the correct place they should be. Second place, which is hard to hear. Here's the reality. Man, woman, child of any age, if God is not in the first position, everything else is going to be out of alignment. Um, When God isn't the first position in marriage or sex or even in how we view our own bodies, that's when we start to get just a... um, a really misaligned view of what sex is for. And um, in Scripture and in that biblical ethic, you know, sex is really meant to create that union and that bond and a sense of belonging in marriage. Um, and the first thing I want to say, because, because sex is so strong and what we know about it and the impact of it can be so strong, and, and we want that, we think that's part of our coming of age and who we need to be is this, we need to have these sexual relationships because somehow it defines us. Um, as believers, as followers of Christ, which I know not everyone in here is, but as followers of Christ, first and foremost, our identity and our purpose comes from Christ. So there's, there's no part of me that says my core identity is about my sexuality. As a follower of Christ, my core identity comes from him, from his grace, um, and for what he has provided for me on the cross, and for who God has made me to be, and his image inside of me. Um, I want to share this verse from 1 Peter 2, um, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you are a follower of Christ, that's your identity. You're holy and chosen and royal. You're his special possession. You're cherished and beautiful because you have the image of God in you, and there's nothing that can change that. Whether you're in a marriage, whether you're not in a marriage, whether you're having sex, whether you're not having sex, none of that impacts who you are um, and your core identity in Christ. But what happens, because even, even though sex doesn't determine your identity, it's very powerful, and it holds a lot of power over our relationships, um, and so in, in the biblical ethic, what we see is that sex is created to create, it, it builds a spiritual union between people. So um, Christopher talked about, I call him Christopher. I know everybody else calls him Topher. I call him Christopher. Um, and so does mom. You're welcome, Terry, because I know you're watching. Um, <laughs> anyway, spiritual union. So he talked about, like, in Scripture, 
we see the man leaves his mother and father, he's joined to his wife, and the two become one. This is the design of sex. It creates unity. It creates belonging and bonding. Um, there's this quote by Tim Keller that says, sex is meant to say, I am with you fully and completely. And if you meant it to say something else, it's a lie. I would take this a little bit further because we can be in a relationship that's not marriage and we can think that the fact that we're having this physical relationship says, yes, I am with you fully and completely right now. Like our culture gets that. They get monogamy. They get like, yeah, we're in this committed relationship for now (laughs) until we're not. And then we're going to move on to somebody else. Um, And so what happens is that in that situation, when, when sex is happening apart from marriage and that lifelong, long-term committed space, it's still doing what it's meant to do. It's still creating a bond. But what happens is the bond gets broken. I want to talk a little bit about like how we use sex, because I understand that it's not, it's not cut and dry. It's not simple. Um, you know, a lot of times when we feel a sense of loss or we feel lonely, um, we feel like we need to be empowered through that type of relationship. Basically, like, there's brokenness inside of us. And that brokenness often drives us into behaviors. And that pain and trauma and things that we've experienced drives us into behaviors to help us cope and help us feel better. So it's not just sex. I mean, it might be alcohol or binge eating or um, other risky behaviors that, that, we, that we engage with. But sex is one of those things. And it makes sense because sex does create that deep sense of belonging and connectedness, at least for a moment. That's kind of the, the window that you get. Um, but again, it creates that bond. But what happens when it creates the bond between two people who are not committed is that the, um, the same thing that makes, deep, that makes sex deeply connecting is the same thing that makes it deeply scarring. And it creates even deeper pain and even less sense of belonging and then shame, oftentimes. And that's not where God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to live in a place of shame and hurt. He wants us to be free and living in the fullness of life. That's what we're called to so in the biblical ethic um, of sex, we also know that marriage is supposed to be honored and the marriage bed kept pure. That's in Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Um, I'm so sorry that I have to tell you that in Scripture there's really three choices. I try to find other ones because I hate telling people, well, it's either marriage or it's adultery or it's sexual immorality. That's all I've got. Like, I don't, I don't have committed relationship for a time. I don't have engaged. I don't have dating. Like, I've just got marriage, adultery, sexual immorality. Like, it's either inside of how God designed it in marriage or it's outside of how God designed it. Um, and that's not easy to say in the culture we live in. That's, that's really tough. Um, when we use sex in ways that it wasn't designed for, so when, when it's impure, when, it's, um, when we're not keeping the marriage bed pure, We strip it of its intended power to unify and create belonging. We turn it into something with the power to harm instead of something that can heal. And we create it into a tool of shame and alienation instead of mutuality and unity. 
we do that all the time in our culture. I mean, there's so many behaviors that, that we in the church and outside of the church engage in that really deforms what sex is meant to be in the biblical ethic. Um, and just to kind of throw out a few, and I, I'll try not to expound too much because it's so much, but just past sexual relationships and the emotion, the emotional connection that that creates, um, past sexual ab- abuse, um, polyamory, pornography, Really anything that says my own pleasure and my power over another person is more important than the image of God in that person and more important than the satisfaction and well-being of that other person. We do that a lot in our culture because the bottom, bottom line is we just want what's good for us. And that's not what we're called to in a biblical ethic of marriage. It's not what we're called to in the church and how to treat one another in the church or how we treat the world at large. Ultimately, the union that sex creates in marriage is really meant to be a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. And it's an opportunity to cultivate deep belonging and value in one another in that marriage. And like all things that God created— Sex is designed to be for his glory and for our good and a reflection of Christ to the world. So we're going to read our primary text one more time. This time we're going to actually look at it from a different translation. It's the New American Standard Version. Um, For this particular section, it's actually a closer, uh, it's a better translation to the original Greek. So um, again, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual moralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband, which we'll talk about in a moment. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. Now, the language that Paul uses here is very emphatic. It is very intentional. It is saying that this isn't an option for you, that there is something owed. And he is specifically talking about the confines of a sexual relationship with marriage, but it's also a broader perspective of what a biblical marriage ethic is all about, that it's not just about sex. And then we get to verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's a fun thing to say at parties. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What now? We were talking about this, and we've been talking about this message a lot, obviously, over this past week, and our 14-year-old daughter was in the room, and we were talking about this, and she got pissed. Like, she was mad. She goes, absolutely not. That is offensive. And, like, she, like, stormed out of the room. And even this morning, I was, like, I brought it up again. She goes, no, no, that is offensive. And it does sound offensive to our ears, right? In modern 21st century America, that concept that we are not our own is it butts up against everything we have been taught and everything that culture tells us. Um, But we aren't just our own. Like, that is the truth and the reality of it. And then again, going into verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Bottom line, sex drives are a thing. You know it, we know it, our culture knows it. Paul, who was single and celibate, knew it, as did the people that he was writing to. And sexual immorality back then, just like today, we continually see how it negatively impacts people's lives, how it destroys people's relationships, and honestly, in many ways, creates a ripple effect that affects further generations in our families because of the decisions and the actions that we make. Paul is getting at the fact that for some, for some, 
marriage might be the very thing that saves them from falling into a life of sexual immorality. And I say the word might, and I stress the word might, because the reality is, if you have unhealthy practices now, if you have misplaced expectations or undealt with pain from your past, and you think that somehow you're not bringing that into your marriage, you're deluding yourself. Marriage doesn't make all of that stuff go away. If anything, it amplifies it. If porn, the subjugation of others, self-gratification are your mainstays before marriage, you're going to bring that into your marriage. Your marriage is going to be affected by it. If you've been told your whole life or if you've heard or if you believe that when you get married, sex is going to be the best thing in the world and it's always going to be fulfilling and both partners are going to be into it all the time and from birth until death, everything's just going to be awesome. You're going to be really disappointed because anyone who's married can tell you it's not always great. It's fun, don't get me wrong, but let's be honest. It's not the main thing. There are so many other components to marriage. If you have trauma and pain from your past and you think that those wounds aren't going to show up in your marriage, you're going to be super frustrated. The way in which marriage changes us is not that it makes us perfect. Quite the opposite. If anything, marriage shows us how broken we really are. Whether we're broken by our own mistakes or by the mistakes of others. Marriage shows us how much we truly need healing. And it shows us, it puts a, a microscope to us and shows us how truly selfish and self-centered and controlling we are. And let's be honest, let's be frank. We are masters at manipulation. We know what it's like to make it seem like we're caring for someone else, but in reality, we're still organizing our life and our places and our situations to get exactly what we want. Marriage will show you very quickly how selfish you are. It will show you um, how controlling you are. And when it does, you have two options. One is you can ignore it, which is what a lot of us do. And we can act as if everything's okay and we can continue to do what we want to do to make sure that we are taken care of and we will watch our marriages degrade and fall apart. Or you could lean into it. And you can work together with your spouse in vulnerability and authenticity, putting one another first, submitting your marriage to God and allowing him to move you from a place of brokenness to healing and from selfishness to selflessness. Again, when, when Paul uses that emphatic tone, starting in verse 3 and going into verse 4, it's very intentional because sex does represent a lot. And although it's twisted in our culture, it still represents a lot in our marriage. But marriage is more than sex. But what sex represents is very similar to many of the other aspects of, of marriage, the, the purposes of marriage. The idea of giving, of generosity, of putting your spouse's needs above your own, of what it means to love them and love them well in all ways and continually to choose to love them, of cheering them on, of giving them loving feedback, of challenging them, of laughing with them and crying with them. Paul's words that he used were actually really revolutionary back then. And honestly, they're pretty revolutionary today still. 
Yeah, so Christopher talked a little bit about kind of the background of this text. And so basically, when, um, when you look at these verses, you've got the previous several chapters that Chris has already unpacked where there's this like liberal attitude towards sex in Rome and in Corinth and in the Corinthian church that's kind of infiltrated, you know, how they're behaving and how they're treating one another and, um, and treating sex in general. But then you also have this subset of people who are ascetics and they're saying no sex at like no cost we're not having sex we're we're so like holy and righteous and in control of ourselves that we're not even going to have sex in our marriages that's that's what kind of scholars believe is happening here and so when paul gives these instructions um it's really revolutionary for both of these groups because first you have kind of the cultural group that's um kind of being infiltrated, like coming from, from Rome and Corinth, um, where it's still a patriarch, a patriarchal, I always say this wrong, patriarchal, 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 I always put in an extra syllable, sorry. Um, so it's, um, so from this patriarchal standpoint, even the Jews had a patriarchal standpoint where the men's needs were, were more important, um, and that's like across the board. Um, and then you had this cultural subset, um, that said nobody needs anything sexually. And Paul basically says, no, this, this relationship is about mutuality and co-ownership. So when you're in this marriage, he's going to talk about like one man, one woman, you're together. So, you know, it's revolutionary. Like we're not having several sexual partners for several different purposes. Um, but, but you are meant to have this mutual relationship where um, your bodies are meant for one another and for each other's um, kind of pleasure and benefit and satisfaction. So don't hold out on one another either. Like don't, don't act like the culture is acting and, and don't be driven by your sexual desires. But when you're in a committed married relationship, don't hold out on one another because that is meant for your benefit um, and for the benefit of your spouse. And that mutual relationship acts as a safeguard um, from the sexual immorality that you're seeing around in your culture. So if, this is his concession, like big if, if you're going to withhold sex from one another in that context, then you do it so that you can go to the Lord for something, so that you can pray together and seek him for the needs of yourselves and your family, but then come back together. Um, I want to touch a little bit on what happens with these verses. Christopher kind of talked about it. Like when you take it out of context, right, you hear this idea of, the wife's body belongs to the husband. And I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I've heard that growing up, like in the church, some parts of the church, some parts of our culture, some places that have taken advantage of that and, and other verses in scripture that make the woman submissive to the man at all costs. So not even just in the marriage relationship, but, but the woman is, is less than the man and the man is more important than the woman um, and his needs are more important. But, but that doesn't, work. Like this idea of, um, of one person holding power over another one um, or wielding power over another human, it, it doesn't work because all of scripture, and even in this context, it's all about mutual submission and love. And bottom line is that we're called to love everyone from this agape love that we talked about earlier. You know, so just thinking about in terms of of this context of marriage, you know, in Ephesians 5, um, submission is talked about as mutual and the love a man has for 
for his wife is to reflect Christ's love for the church. And husbands are told that they ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Colossians 3, 18 and 19 instructs, says submit to one another, but then it instructs women to submit and husbands to love, and it's agape love. And I always think, like, he's on the hook way more than I am, because agape love is the one that mirrors Jesus, and Jesus had to give his life up for the church so that we could be whole and be in relationship with God and brought to him as pure and spotless. So the husband really has a lot of work to do in, in the role of submission and holding um, holding the wife's needs higher than his own. And then again, we're just called to love, period. We're called to love the way God loves us. And we don't do it perfectly, but when we're striving for that and when we love as God calls us to love, then really there's no room for me to exert my power over another person. When I love as God calls me to love, I'm looking out for the best interest of that other person, and I'm acting in service to their good. And there's no room for my ego, my selfishness, my self-righteousness, or my perceived needs to be more important than the other person. Um, There's this quote that we wanted to share from someone who, he's not even a Christian, he's a moralist. So in his search for moral truth, um, he's touched on some absolute truth that that, um, we we would agree with and we want to share with you about good marriage. So he says that in a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness and see it as the fundamental problem. You treat it more seriously than your spouse's selfishness. The everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. Every day, there's a chance to inspire and encourage your partner to become his or her best self. In this lens, marriage isn't about two individuals trying to satisfy their own needs. It's a partnership of mutual self-giving for the purpose of moral growth and to make their corner of the world a little better. I would take this one step further, uh, since we're looking at this in truth through the biblical ethic of marriage and sex, and beyond just, just making us better people and making our corner of the world better, when we love as God calls us to love within our marriages, our marriages are a witness to the world around us that speaks to the reality of Christ. So let's talk about some takeaways. We made it. We're almost to the end. Um, we said that there's something here today for everybody, and I hope you've, you've heard that. Um, I hope you've heard grace, and I hope you've heard truth um, and I want to talk a little bit about two key takeaways for everybody, whether you're married or single or dating or engaged or divorced or widowed, any of, any of those things, anybody. Um, the first one is that your body is not your own, it's God's. The kingdom economy is always different than the world's, right? So like in the world, consent is king. If I give you consent, that's fine. If we're a consenting relationship, that's totally fine. But in the kingdom, it's different. Because when you make Christ king, then you have to think about the spirit that indwells you and the idea that your body is meant for the glorification of God. And, and it's up to God to say, like, who, when, where, how things are happening with, with your body and how you're connecting with someone in a sexual relationship or in a marriage. And the second thing is that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. 
it's really like that, that simple, I can't come up with anything else to give you that feels more comfortable or that is more like the culture that we're in. We just have to honor sex and save it for marriage. Like that's what we're called to do. Um, and the reason is so that it can be the powerful unity builder and, and it can bring that sense of belonging, full belonging between two people. Um, and I just want to say, I know we're all in different places. And so I don't want anybody to hear judgment, but I want everybody to understand, like, this is, this is, according to the biblical ethic, what we're asked to do, what is put before us as what God says is best. That doesn't mean that we're all practicing what's always best for us, but it is something to strive for and something to work towards, and it's not easy but I just encourage you to hear it and just think about, like, what does this mean for me today? For the married folks in the room, um, or for the future married folks in the room, I guess, I I would say our heart's desire is that um, at some point you come to an understanding of how beautiful, how freeing, how exciting a marriage that is mutually responsible is, where you can really enjoy the mutual belonging the way that God has designed it. Um, we talked back and forth about like what, what's a good takeaway for married couples and we thought about like, oh, we should have them raid each other. And I was like, ooh, that feels like opening a can of worms that no one wants to open. <laughs> Nor are we trained to help people walk through that, you know? <laughs> like, so uh, we settled on this. I, I simply want to leave you with two questions and we're actually going to post these questions on our social media feeds this week just as a reminder. And these are questions that if you're married, um, we really want to challenge you to ask yourself and dwell on and take action on. The first is this. What will you do this week to intentionally elevate the needs of your spouse above your own? What will you do this week to intentionally elevate your spouse's needs above your own? That's the first question. And the second question is this. How will you intentionally create a sense of belonging for your spouse within your marriage? Just dwell on those two questions. Have dinner together. Go see a movie. Have fun together. Talk with one another. And really rest in that. And know that we will be praying this week that the Holy Spirit challenges you hard and convicts you a lot. Because when we can move into this place of mutual responsibility and mutual belonging, we get to experience marriage the way that God intended it. And that is truly revolutionary. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of marriage, as well as the gift of singleness, God. Um, You call us to different things. Um, God, I thank you for sex. I thank you for the various kinds of love that exists that you show us. Lord, I pray today, um, as there was just a lot of stuff in this message, God, because there is so much content in the words that are in Scripture. God, I pray that for those that are married, first and foremost, that their souls would be troubled by your Spirit. God, that they would lean into you and recognize maybe their own selfishness or their own controlling nature, that they'll realize some of the things that they've been holding on to, that they've been afraid to talk to their spouse about and work through with their spouse. God, I pray that people in this church, whether married or not, will surround one another just to help them and pray for them and encourage them and challenge them. And God, I pray that those two questions will resonate in our minds and our hearts this week and bring us to a place of action. God, for those that have experienced the pain of divorce or trauma or abuse, for those that might be single or widowed, God, all those things, 
Lord, we know that your word does not come back void, and we know that even though this message might be um, intentionally for married couples, that there are still uh, aspects of truth that affect all of us. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that we would draw close to you and that you would continue to make yourself known to us, draw us close to you so that we understand who you are truly calling us to be and who you want us to be, as opposed to just falling in line with whatever culture says at the moment. It's your holy name we pray. Amen.